This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Marla Beck. I'm the founder of Blue Mercury, a company I founded 21 years ago. For me, what I love about beauty is it's all about empowerment. The industry is full of creative entrepreneurs who have a vision and create products and experiences that help people live their very best lives. Imagine launching an e-commerce business ahead of the curve and then pivoting into brick and mortar with stores strategically located where people live. Changing the model from brand-specific salespeople to all-encompassing expert beauty advisors in a soothing personal environment that focuses on good energy. Then branching off into in-house skincare and makeup brands and integrating into a retail behemoth to propel growth, yet maintaining the company's DNA. And through it all, surviving the ups and downs in the industry and economy over the past two decades, including moving with the behavior changes brought on by the pandemic, from makeup to skincare, DIY beauty, virtual testing and consultations, and the importance of intimacy in retail in this digital age. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. So welcome, Marla. We're so excited to have you here on Beauty is Your Business today. And I'm here with Abby Wallach. Hi, Marla. Great to see you. Hi, April. And Karen Moon. Hi, everyone. And we're just going to jump right into it. Marla, you are an industry veteran in the retail space. You've journeyed through many different waves of history in terms of this country and the economy and all sorts of things. So give us a little bit of a snapshot of that from the beginning. So first, I want to thank you, April, Abby, and Karen for having me today. I love everything you guys are doing. So I really appreciate and I'm honored to, to be here. Uh, You know, I started Blue Mercury 21 years ago during the first dot-com boom. I have to say, I think I've seen it all. Uh, So we were started as an internet company, and we pivoted to stores. Uh, I saw the recession and the dot-com bust of 2001, uh, the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and now the pandemic. Um, So I've seen all the great times of beauty and some of the tough times. Um, But it's an industry that's always managed to innovate and come out stronger than ever. Um, So I think, you know, when we started during the first dot-com boom, we started as an e-commerce company and we were a little too early. Now, this was back when um, it was before Google was invented. Everybody was on AOL. Uh, It was tough to dial up um, and wait to get online. And so uh, we pivoted to stores pretty quickly. And so that's just an example of how the industry and companies can continue to evolve and change um, as as we're faced with new challenges. Wow. So speaking of new challenges, walk us through a little bit of the past year with the pandemic and this latest challenge that everybody's been dealing with in some way or another and how that's impacted your business. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we shut down all 200, all, almost 200 locations in March uh, for about 60 days. And that was the hardest uh, thing I've ever done, um, asking, 
you know, these amazing beauty experts that love to work with and help clients to stay home. And so we quickly started working with them uh, to actually do video consults uh, with clients. And it was so fun because clients would take their phones into their medicine cabinets and show our staff everything they're using and ask a million questions. So I think we're seeing amazing uh, behavior change as the um, clients really evolve um, and get used to talking to people through video. Now that our stores are open again, everybody wants to have a video call uh, anyway, um, so they don't have to run in necessarily. You know, I think the industry is really changing in terms of the mix of purchases and how people behave. Um, You know, it's really moved towards skincare and away from makeup. People are using more products than ever um, in their skincare routines um, because they have time. And I always joke, you can, uh, between a Zoom call, you can run into the bathroom and do a mask and then come back. um, And before you couldn't do that. Um, But, uh, and makeup sales are, and product purchases are transitioning from, you know, away from lips and about how do I emphasize my eyes? Um, you know, the past you see, the, the part you see above the mask. Um, so, so massive, massive transition in the way people are behaving. The other interesting piece is the whole self-care DIY piece, which is uh, everyone wants tools to be able to do their own hair, um, to do their own facials, uh, to do their own microdermabrasion, any, any sort of treatments at home on their own. But they also want it to be spa-like. So we're seeing um, increases in like candles and scents and just all of these at-home sort of um, indulgences. So uh, it's always fascinating how a crisis shifts the beauty industry radically. But the best part is uh, entrepreneurs are still launching new brands. Um, I think in the 2007-2008 recession, we didn't see that. Um, everybody pulled back. But now because of the DTC business is stronger than ever, um, people are comfortable launching brands and not having uh, to wait for people to come back into the stores. That's so interesting. So I'm curious to know, as things start to hopefully open up and we look towards a brighter future, Marla, how are you thinking about the in-store experience and how it converges with technology at home? I mean, because now people are used. I love that you they were going into their cabinets to show what they use. I mean, that is the ultimate, you know, woman's dream to have an expert tell them what to put on their skin. So how are you thinking about the future and using those techniques and tools in the store, or is that not something that you're thinking? No, we keep thinking about how do you wrap the client experience around uh, digital uh, and the stores, but it's really about digital and our people. So I was talking to someone the other day, and we have you know one beauty expert who has this huge following, and the clients just call her and text her and video her all the time asking for advice. Well, that can take place anywhere. You know, that's not necessarily a store. That's not necessarily just an Internet site. So how do we leverage technology to to really create that uniform beauty experience and accessibility that clients want? So I think, you know, clients want that intimacy now of face-to-face interaction no matter where they are. And so I, I think there will be new technologies to to enable that in a way that we've never seen. I think that it's an exciting time, especially with all of the augmented reality and all of the things that are, they've been around for a long time. It's not that they're so new. It's just that the opportunity and there's a need for it and they're giving unique experiences. 
it's just like video conference was has been around mm-hmm. forever, right? But I didn't mm-hmm. think to use it. Did you? <laughs> right? Well, why would we? We were well, running I, around all the time. Right. It was time. <laughs> and now you're like, well, do will I ever, you know, have a huge travel to another city to have a big meeting when I can just do it online and really spend my in-person time on developing relationships and, you know, having coffee with a friend or having coffee with someone in the industry, that's more important face-to-face than the getting the work done. And so I keep thinking, none of us understand what the future behaviors will be. And it won't be a radical change. It will be an evolution from where we are today. But I think everybody's resetting how they're going to spend all of their time. Um, and we don't know what it is, um, but I think we can start to think about what people are missing, which is the face-to-face contact with friends and colleagues. Um, but but getting work done and the future of work, uh, you know, won't necessarily be about in-person, which could change, for example, like Blue Mercury, as we think about citing stores, right? You know, how do we think about putting stores where offices are, Versus where people live and work. I mean, primarily we're, we're where people live, um, but um, do we want to be where people work? I'm not sure, right? So, you know, every part of business and personal life has changed. And so I think, you know, leaders in beauty in the future just have to evolve with that um, and just listen to what people are saying about what they want. Going back in time a little bit, Marla, to it, what you were just saying made me think about where you positioned your stores when you were moving from e-commerce into brick and mortar and the decision behind that. And like you said, how maybe it will transition into the future. So tell us a little bit about how that transition happened, where your location started and why and how things grew from there. Yeah, I mean, so in 1999, we started as a beauty e-commerce company, mainly because um, I had been in graduate school and Jeff Bezos came and talked about e-commerce and how he was going to change the world by um, creating this online book company. Um, And we had just gotten our first email addresses. Um, You know, Google didn't exist. We didn't even know how to use email. And so here was this visionary talking about this future world of commerce that didn't include physical stores. Um, So I was completely enthralled. Um, We started as a beauty e-commerce company, uh, mainly because I was a beauty junkie and wanted to bring beauty products to the internet um, because I'd moved east and the ones I loved from California were hard to find. Uh, So we started, uh, we were the first to launch a lot of brands, including NARS, uh, on the internet. But it was like crickets. Nobody was shopping online. Um, Back when we started with stores, uh, you could only purchase cosmetics at department stores or drug stores. The specialty beauty store concept did not exist. Uh, So we started with our first store in Georgetown. um, And what was unique was that the staff were trained on all brands and clients could shop in all brands and touch and feel products. So back then in in the late 90s, uh, everything was behind glass counters. um, And you had to ask a staffer that only sold one brand, whether it was clean or Lancome or whatever you wanted to help you with that one brand. And then if you wanted another product in that in a different brand, you had to start over with a new sales associate. Um, so the, the first location in Georgetown uh, was 
it was a combination people, you know, it was a thriving sort of business and, um, uh, residential community. And what we realized is people would just come to hang out and talk about beauty products because the beauty experts knew everything about all the different products. It turned into, you know, questions about problems they had not, I want this one product from this one brand, but can you help me? Uh, you know, I have a breakout in my skin or, you know, my brows are um, fading because I'm getting older. So, Beauty became about advice, and that was how we looked at the future of the beauty industry. And so as we expanded our retail footprint, we located in cities and suburbs uh, on the streets and not in malls. Um, So really this sort of neighborhood store experience. And that has dominated our retail footprint uh, for all of these years. Um, I think that makes it even now during COVID easy to come back because uh, people are staying pretty close to home. Right. When you go out, you're not making a big shopping trip or you're not, um, you know, going very far. And so we see a lot of our clients walking um, their dogs and then stopping by our stores. And so I think that that sort of personal sort of integration of beauty into your everyday life continues to be important. You know, I have a question on like kind of on that piece of it's interesting because when you think about the specialty format neighborhood, it seems like. I mean, are your clients, is the customer relationship a lot more intimate with your store associates and um, the clients that come through versus, you know, like a Sephora or, you know, even Macy's, right? So, yeah, I mean, our beauty experts tend to know um, our clients really well. They know their dogs' names. They know, you know, what they had going on last weekend. Um, So, yeah, it's a much more sort of friendly, intimate relationship, which I think people want, not just in beauty, but in all aspects of their lives. They want to be seen, they want to be known, uh, you know, they want connections. And so it's, you know, it's this dichotomy, right? Which is, you know, digital and e-commerce has accelerated so much, but it's not always that intimate compared to popping into a store or, you know, into your local coffee shop and just having a conversation and getting to know people. And I think, as we come out of COVID, that missing social piece um, uh, in person will um, be important for clients. So yeah, we've always loved that intimacy we get from talking about beauty products. And it's a pretty intimate category, right? I mean, you're talking about problems you have, right? Um, it's like, you know, going to the pharmacist at a drugstore, you've got a problem. You don't, you sort of look around, you don't want everyone to hear what you're asking about. Right. Um, so (laughs) that's so true. That's true. (laughs) Same with beauty products. I mean, you're asking about something, um, you know, it's super personal, uh, in terms of, you know, what, what you want to work on or what you want to improve. Um, so, um, I think this industry and the products lend itself to an intimate experience. And if you can um, accelerate that or amplify that uh, in any way, whether it's in person or online, people care about that. Um, and so, I mean, there's all this digital technology, right? I can try and lipstick, um, you know, a million shades uh, online, but you're still missing this idea that, um, you know, someone's like, well, you need a real opinion from someone about if it looks good on you or not. Right. right. So it's almost um, like you guys were best set up to the for the virtual consultations, right? It almost like just really fit your DNA. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly why we did it. Um, so, but the question is, you know, how can we continue, right? So one of the challenges now we have is people are on the store floor, um, but their clients want to, you know, text them or be on FaceTime, but I have a client in front of me. So, you know, you have new challenges that you have to figure out. We're trying to figure out if, do we put people in the store that just answer their FaceTimes or client texts, uh, you know, just new challenges and opportunities to try to figure out. So, and some people like doing erratic. Yeah. A little erratic, right? Like people, you know, they want what they want when they want it, especially when it comes to beauty and makeup. It's like, I need it now. So it's, it's kind of cool that, you know, consumers and customers are reaching out directly and they're getting that immediate gratification. I mean, it's just like now you can, you can um, do telemedicine with your doctor, right? so much easier than going in waiting for an appointment. So I just think we're going to see radical change in sort of these personal relationships. Um, but the question is, you know, who wants to do which part of the value chain with your clients, right? Who wants to be online still? Who wants to be in store? And I think we'll see um, people have their preferences. You know, I have a question about now as we go back into the store, how are you thinking about protecting the consumer because of COVID? I mean, testing, look, the beauty industry is about testing and trying and samples, and that's the experience. Who doesn't love that? So what, how are you thinking about managing that process? No, it's a good question. I mean, for a while, we had no idea what to do. So we said no testing, no trying, no touching, Right. Um, now we do no touch makeovers where, you know, we may use a face chart or show a client how to apply makeup and walk them through doing it themselves with, um, sterilized makeup or, you know, walk them through, through video. The days of a, a beauty expert or sales associate applying makeup to someone I think are over for a while, um, in store. Um, now I do know people that are still having we don't do it, but are having makeup artists come to their homes to do makeup if they have an important like Zoom event or something. But I think retailing in that way won't be around until we feel safe. Um, It's just like in our spas, you know, we're not doing things that are close touch. Uh, We may be doing wax, body waxing that is not close touch. And so I think it's tricky. I mean, we haven't figured it all out yet. Number one priority is protecting our staff and our clients. Um, So, you know, these days of, you know, touching clients and applying makeup or skincare are gone. Now, the CDC did say that having, you know, skincare testers out is fine, right? So, you know, as long as people aren't putting their fingers in the jars. um, So they're like airless pump testers you can have out and people can try them as long as you're sterilizing after. So, but it's, it's, super complicated, right? So there's like lists of, you know, new protocols and procedures for every part of everything we're doing. Um, But we're, you know, we're trying to move forward all the time because you want clients to have that experience because it it would be easy to say, don't touch anything, but that's hard. Um, So it's just about safety and figuring out this new world um, that we're living in, but not easy. So I'm curious, I mean, I know you sold to Macy's, you know, about five years ago. Um, what has been, what has it like been being like, you know, running a business within that? What are the synergies? Um, are they, is there value in, you know, testing things out and then it, they find value in that, you know, like being a small company within a big company? What does that 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back to the partnership, I mean, there were a couple of things we all looked at. One was we were growing so quickly and we were building all of our back end infrastructure from scratch. And so in being part of Macy's, we're able to leverage their technology infrastructure, their supply chain infrastructure, all the stuff that the client doesn't see. And that's been amazing. Um, in terms of what Macy's gets from us is, you know, we're, we're scanning and innovating nonstop. And so brand ideas, ideas for how to do things differently, neighborhood store ideas, right? Because they are expanding some of their footprint. So the innovation piece, I think, is where they learn from us how we um, work in teams with our staff. And so we've always had a team-based compensation model um, from the beginning, right? There aren't individual commissions. And so our team-based um, compensation model, how we promote staff from within and beauty and bring them all the way up. So I think there's a lot of learning on both sides. And for me as a leader, being part of, you know, you know Fortune 500 company, it's been great uh, in terms of the structure we created, which is Blue Mercury is a separate division with its own profit and loss statement. And I think it's a great example of an acquisition that has gone well because you maintain the heart of the DNA of the acquired company uh, while also getting the benefit of being part of a big company. And so there hasn't been as much integration as you sometimes see in other companies. And so I always think about that because M&A is hard and everyone says, well, 50% of um, M&A works. Um, and that's not a good record, right? One for two. Um, but I think the difference is by keeping us separate and keeping our DNA and structure separate, um, it really has enabled us to grow. I mean, we've grown from 68 locations when they bought us to almost 200 um, obviously, our staff, um, we have almost 2,000 employees. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of great growth that has happened under the umbrella of a big company. No, that's awesome because like, sometimes you hear about people that they're worried where innovation dies. So being able to maintain that you know, secret sauce and DNA is you know, kind of the dream, I guess. Yeah, I think we've we've launched almost 200 products also for M61 and Luna Naster, our own brands, um, since that too. So innovation definitely has not gone away. I love that. Coming up, you'll hear more from Marla about launching her own beauty brands within her retail business and the challenges and the opportunities related to that. And we will hear a little bit more coming up. What if you could tell your story, the story of your brand, your product, the compelling story of the sourcing of materials or ingredients, or even tips for getting the best use out of your products? What if you could engage your consumer, amplify their experience, or even improve conversion or initiate sales at points they don't usually happen? What if you could connect with your consumer wherever they happen to be? In the store, on your website, in the bathroom, or even on the go? What would that be worth to you? It's time you learned about StoryDot from Mouth Media Network. Short-form audio stories consumers can access with their smartphone, in brick-and-mortar locations, on physical product, or even embedded into your website. It's where commerce, advertising, and the consumer meet. Being competitive requires every advantage you can implement. 
So discover StoryDot today at www.storydot.com. That's www.storidot.com. So Marla, you mentioned the brands that you have started within your retail business. Tell us a little bit about that and how that works amongst the brand offering that you have, you already had existing when you launched those brands. I mean, the reason we launch our own brands and products is because we see a gap in the marketplace that isn't being met. So the first brand we launched was M61, which is a clean clinical vegan skincare line in 2012, mainly because we had clients coming in saying, I love the natural products in store, but they're not doing anything on my skin. And we had other clients coming in saying, I love all the technical dermatologist brands, but they have additional chemicals I I don't really want to use. And so M61 just came out of this client feedback, which was, you know, a clean brand that actually uh, really impacted the texture and luminosity of the skin. Um, So I think, you know, one of our first products was Power Glow Peel, which is a one-step, one-minute peel. um, And that's been a top product ever since. So such a good product. Yeah. Yeah. And we we actually have the 20% version, 20% glycolic coming out um, this uh, in two weeks. So, um, but But just, you know, when we see gaps, um, we want to meet them. And that was the same for Luna Naster Cosmetics, which is we didn't have a paraben-free mascara in our store. And we certainly didn't have a vegan paraben-free mascara in our store. Um, And then on top of that, two of my closest friends, which are, you know, um, leading executives in their fields... um, weren't wearing makeup to work anymore. And I asked them, I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, it's just too complicated. The steps got too complicated. So Luna Astro was really created, you know, for them as a clean and vegan makeup line to help you get out the door in 10 minutes or less. So I did get them wearing makeup again. <laughs> um, uh, but really, it, it's about identifying gaps and meeting those gaps. Um, and while also, you know, we're still constantly scanning the industry for the, the next um, greatest entrepreneur and visionary. And so I think we launched probably 30 or 40 brands at least, um, you know, last year during the pandemic because there's so much great innovation coming out. So if we can meet the white space, great. But if we can find it from our amazing entrepreneurs in the industry, we're also, um, you know, happy to um, help them grow and thrive in the industry, which is one of the most rewarding pieces of what we get to do. I'm very curious about when you are looking at the white space, are you looking at data? How are you identifying the needs? I I know by talking to your friends, of course, that's always the first thing on all of our agendas, but in terms of like casting a wider net other than canvassing, you know, the young hip brands that are out there, are you leveraging the data um, that you collect from your customers? Is it conversations in stores? Is there a method and process that you're using? Because to develop any brand takes a lot of time and money. I mean, I think as with everything, it's sort of art and science, right? So um, I think a lot of the the best ideas come verbally, 
um, I have to say, but that means you have to listen. So um, ideas for products we develop on our own often come from our beauty experts that are in the field that see something missing in our stores. Ideas for launching new brands. Um, it may be something we see. It may be a trend we've identified that we want to find the best in class in. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of um, new categories like supplements or, you know, feminine health um, or sleep wellness that are coming out. So we've identified trends. And we've said we're waiting and watching for best in class um, there. So um, I think the data, I, I believe the data helps you where people are purchasing, right? So we know, you know, skincare more than color right now. But um, if you wait for industry data, you're almost too late. Um, right, because industry data is the result of products that were being developed years ago. Um, so uh, for me, it's really about um, all of the conversations and observations and listening uh, for what's new and next, and then having a methodology for writing down those themes and then watching for what you want to launch in those themes. Um, but um you have to be completely open and uh, listening to everything out there. Very interesting. And speaking of the brand mix that you look for and the way that you are presenting it to customers, Abby and I were, mentioned, we were talking about before what a great experience it is in the stores. And feel it's a feeling of intimacy, like you mentioned, Marla, and that that you don't get in many places, especially when they're not in just individual boutiques that you might find in a town. So you have that feeling, but from a, you know, a company that's a chain of stores, which is really unique. So tell us a little bit about the merchandising and how the stores are set up and to foster that sort of feeling that I think that brings people back and that gives them that sense of community that they have and with also the associates and feeling like they're personally known and this place is in their neighborhood and they can feel at home there. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, when we set up the stores and the store design, uh, it was always about discovery and uh, accessibility in an environment that was soothing and not overstimulating. Right. So, um, you know, the colors of, you know, the blue or the white or natural woods, um, the way clients walk through the store, I remember, I, I think up through probably store 100, I literally signed off on every design and I would always look as a client entered, which way did I think they were going to go? How are they going to walk through? You know, is there anything blocking them? Um, and do they feel like they have the mind space to, to try and touch and explore? And then with our beauty experts, um, our model, as I mentioned before, is about team-based helping clients, but also um, we hire full-timers um, that want to build a career with us and so um, that are absolute beauty experts. And so they want they want to help clients. They want to get to know people. You know, we were just looking and we have, we have staff that have been on our store floors for over 10 years. I mean, and so when you have that, of course they know everybody around. You know, they've seen you know, moms and teenagers come in and grow up and get married. I mean, you have this sort of life cycle of um, relationships that you're embedded in the neighborhood with. And so it's a combination of the store design, the merchandising, and the people. Um, 
And you can't take one away um, because it's all of those things together that create the DNA. It really works. <laughs> it's it's just this, you can tell, it's this like magic secret sauce that is very enticing to just be around and to be part of. So, so I'll, I'll tell you this funny thing that we have when we walk in and do store visits. We don't do so much anymore in terms of checking stores. The first thing you sort of check is the energy. And that's that sort of magical thing that you can't even measure, right? Because I know the store performance. I know, you know, I know everything about which brands are selling, right? We have all the data. But when you walk in, you can tell if the energy's off or on, right? So, and that's that's this magical thing about um, retail, right? The store experience that um, turns the dial one way or another. Love that. Right? Because at the end of the day, people... It's all about the people. It's about the people, right? It's about the connection. It's about, you know, making that emotional connection that you want to be in the space. And I think it's going to be even more important now than ever because we all want to be out. We all want to be with people. We just want to have, you know, a life back soon. So we're all coming to Blue Mercury. Let Marla meet us there. We're going to have a <laughs> I know. I was thinking that though. It's not like it's going to turn on or off. It's just going to evolve. And I think all of a sudden we're going to be like, oh, we're back in stores now, right? There's no on <laughs> or off switch, right? It's a little strange, definitely. You know, what I think is like, interesting about, you know, hearing the story, your, you know, origin story and just everything you've been through. Like, I remember there was one point you said, you want to live long enough to live forever. Um, this is a quote from you. And I think it's so fascinating that you've continued over the last 20 years to be nimble and adapt through three recessions, but also like industry paradigm shifts, right? You know, from digital transformation to the creator economy, you know, and I, I just assume that, you know, there's so many different talent needs in adapting. What were some of the leadership lessons you've learned throughout all these shifts? Yeah, I mean, I think... A couple things. Um, one is the most simple, which is you can't run out of money. So I know that sounds um, crazy, but there are a lot of e-commerce companies or young entrepreneurial companies that I've seen over the years that raise a ton of money from venture capital or different places and spend and become big companies, but may not have the, the revenue or the client loyalty to match. And so you really have to be scrappy and think about how you allocate every dollar in a way that it serves the client and helps grow your company. And so I think you have to pay attention to your profit and loss statement and how just the basics of business were in business, right? So that basics, because that enables you to do the inspiring innovation that you want to do. Um, the second thing is it's about the team and the culture of the team. We have kept our entrepreneurial culture for 21 years, which means um, if there's a problem, we analyze you know, where it came from and we fix it. Um, if we have to change on a dime, we all talk about why we have to change and then we move forward. Um, and it's about sort of bringing everybody along. I, I, you know, One thing I realized during COVID is we, so many people reacted differently on the team, right? And I'm sure you've seen this in your lives. You know, one extreme is the sky is falling and it's never going to get better. Um, so, and the other is, okay, I'm rolling up my sleeves and we're going to get through this. Um, 
but you want to bring everybody along because they're all part of the team and they're all good in different situations. And so just like in your life, you probably have, you know, family, you know, members or relatives or friends that were at those different extremes, you know, you're still a community and you've got to bring everyone along. And so I think that's always important as you're evolving and changing your company or your organization um, that, that you see the importance of the team uh, and bring them along for the long term, whether or not they're the right person at that moment, they'll be the right person, you know, in, in the future. And I, I think um, that's the thing I love about our team is, um, you know, we're, we're scrappy, we work together and we change quickly. Um, and I think that's really, a, you know, big piece of, uh, you know, being able to survive for a long time. Really, really interesting. And it's so true. It's like, there's, you want all of those different viewpoints and personalities because that's what makes success, I think, in the end. Um, so, so, so true. So, Marla, tell us a little bit about how you see, I mean, obviously you said it's it's kind of hard to know how things are going to evolve coming out of this. Um, and we know that skincare is taking a big focus. And do you think that that's going to continue, that people are going to, that the DIY aspect of beauty is going to stick or do you think that people are, some people are just going to say, I just need to get back to my professionals and, and some people will stick to doing DIY or how do you think it's going to shake out? I, I think the biggest impact of COVID on the beauty industry is this transition to health and wellness as part of beauty. I think being in the industry for so long at the for many years, it was about confidence and empowerment, which is great and will continue. But now the industry has permission to be in wellness and health. And so I think that merge is the most important piece coming out of COVID and that will stick. Um, in terms of services, uh, in terms of which products sell, I think it's going to be an evolution. I think at a certain point, people are going to, you know, be um, excited to be at parties again and have events. And so you'll see color come back in its own way. Um, I think uh, skincare just, you know, when people get really um, embedded in their skincare routines and trying new products, that will continue because they'll be loyal to all of these new steps. Um, and I think we can't underestimate the size of Gen Z and the millennials in that cohort as they age. Um, they're going to be coming out of COVID at sort of peak beauty purchase years. Um, and so I think their preferences will be different and we'll have to listen for what those are. But it's a really, really big cohort um, and they will impact beauty going forward. Um, so um, that, those are the things that we're watching and paying attention to. We say you can't predict the future, but you can pay attention to how things evolve. Interesting about Gen Z, because I think a lot about that generation. Um and the male version too. I, I live with a lot of sons. I have a bunch of sons. They're very into their grooming. You know, they want to be attended to. They want product. And, um, you know, this next generation is really curious, but they're very knowledgeable 
they're very, and they want to be included in everything. How are you thinking about that and bringing that generation into the store uh, to be a part of your community the way you've done, you know, in the past? The interesting your, thing. With the it, other customers. Yeah, the interesting thing is because um, we're close to people's homes, they have grown up shopping with us. And so we may have been the their first experience with, um, beauty and grooming as they came in with their mom, as they had, you know, their first pimple. Um, so, it, you know, we have that them as customers. I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I think at a certain point, that generation, it, it's not going to matter whether they're male or female products or what it is. Like I'm starting to see young men wear nail polish a lot. I think that's fascinating that that becomes not an identifier at all, just another element of, you know, their grooming. They they want to be individuals, and that's how they show they're individualistic. Um, and that is fascinating to me. Um, so I think beauty will not be um, targeted at any one um, sex or um or um, aspect of sexuality, that it will be universal more than ever before. Rather than talk about men or boys using grooming products or men or boys using makeup, um, it will just be products for everybody. I love that, and I agree. As someone who also lives with a male, I find that he is just as interested in the face masks and the the peels, all he had to do was have somebody tell him about it. And now he's like, oh, I use this once a week. I'm like, you use that peel once a week? Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like I love it. once sometimes oh. a lot of, you know, males who are not, it's just something that they didn't, if they didn't know about, they didn't know to be interested in it. But once they do, I feel like they are to care just as much as they about their skin and their hair and probably their hair even more than women do so. I do think it's going to be like this generation is really opening up the industry to, you know, men don't just have razors and hair gel anymore. It'll be a little bit broader. And like you said, my boyfriend doesn't mind using products that I use, you know, they're not in pink bottles. He doesn't really, you know, they don't smell like flowers. So to him, it's, he's just like, well, it's just a product. This is great. So they fight over it in my house. <laughs> I bet. The fight well, you have to see what's going on. Oh my god, it's so You are outnumbered, Abby. The shipments. <laughs> I can only imagine. But anyway, it's very interesting. I'm excited to see how that evolves for sure. Um and coming up you'll hear a little bit more about the personal side of Marla with a round of what we call hitting the pan right after this. Culture starts at the top, and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And now, it's Hitting the Pan. Marla, it's time for Hitting the Pan, when we get to know the deeper layers of who you are. So to determine the order of who asks the questions, we give the proverbial salon chair a spin and see who it lands on. So let's spin the chair. And the first question goes to Abby. So Marla, I know you've just had this incredible career and you've worked so hard to really make a difference in the industry and it shows and it shines. Tell us what I want to know is a little bit about you and what you do when you have time to spend with your family and what do you do in your free time? Fun. Yeah. What makes you happy? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a voracious reader. I've always been a reader. Um, so, uh, and I'll read anything from fiction to nonfiction. It makes me happy. Um, my son and I um, have this book about, um, it's called Shakespeare for Every Day. So right before bed, we read a little piece of Shakespeare every night recently. Um, so, um, you know, the whole family knows that I'm happiest with a book sitting on a couch somewhere. So not not too exciting, but um, that's me. Uh, I also have picked up tennis in the last um, 10 years, so late to tennis, but um, sort of fun. There are courts about a block from my house, so friends and I will meet early in the morning when the weather's good um, at the tennis court. So very, very straightforward. Um, and then one funny thing, uh, I love syllabi from uh, universities. So if I want to learn something about something, I will go find a syllabus at a major university, um, and I call it syllabus diving. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing, but if you ever want to learn anything, for example, about data science or something completely new that you know nothing about, go find a syllabus from a great professor and you can, you can learn. So. I feel like that needs to be a club on Clubhouse. I love that. <laughs> what a great tip. Yeah, great idea. Wait, I do have one more question. Can you give us three of your top all-time favorite books since you're such an avid reader? What's your favorite? Oh, that's so hard. Um, all-time favorites. Uh, you know, I love A Gentleman in Moscow. Um, just um, it's paced um, a little bit after uh, – Russian uh, short story writers. So there's just something about that book that I love. I love anything by Edward Rutherford. He's a, he writes historic fiction, especially his book on Paris. Um, I'm a, I'm a historic fiction junkie. So there's a, and then the whole Colleen McCullough Rome series. So um, those are more sort of my, um, my books that I read sort of uh, for fun. Um, there's also, um, leadership books that I love. So, um, you know, beyond entrepreneurship by Jim Collins is one of my all time favorite books. And then Peter Drucker's book on innovation and how you think about innovation and how you scan for innovation is also good. So I give you my sort of historical fiction ones and then my, uh, business ones that I go back to. Oh, fantastic. Love that. So interesting. Thanks, Marla. So let's do another spin of the salon chair, and it lands on me. So, Marla, I'm curious. Obviously, nobody's been going anywhere too far these days from where where home is. Um, So where is it that you want to go as soon as travel is more open than it is now? 
I know my husband and I keep talking about that. You know, I want to go back to the, you know, the greats, right? Like Rome and just walk around the streets of Rome. Um, I want to go back to Paris and see museums. I mean, that's the thing I miss are the museums. I want to go up to New York and see MoMA, right? I just, I guess they're open now, but it just doesn't feel like uh, I should be going. So um, just um, opening my mind back up to the great places around the world. I love that. I feel the same. Rome is on the top. Italy is actually on the top of my list too. We're supposed to go there last April. Not did not happen, but hopefully soon. So one more spin of the salon chair and it lands on Karen. Right now it's January, 2021. So let's fast forward and it's, oh no, it's February. Wow. Time flies. It's February. So now let's fast forward and it's February, 2022. What were the three most amazing things that happened for you? You know, I have a big moment. My oldest daughter is graduating from high school. Um, so that's a milestone uh, for a parent, um, that experience. Um, two, I think for me, just uh, the community where I live opens back up. I think, you know, D.C. and Bethesda, Maryland has been uh, pretty uh, conservative. Um, so I think, you know, for all of the restaurants and um, small shops and businesses, um, you know, I'll be so happy when everything opens up again um, for them. Uh, and three, um, you know, I, I really want to see the country accelerate our vaccinations. I mean, it's so these aren't necessarily personally to me, but these are things I'm watching for and um would make me really happy. Thanks for sharing us too. I think we all feel that way. That's for sure. It can't come soon enough. I feel like we all agree. So on that note, for a brighter and better year to come, we would love to ask you for your final thought, Marla, on our conversation, anything you want to leave our listeners with. We talked a lot about the future in this conversation. And so I would say that we all need to keep looking to the future and keep creating and cre keep innovating um, and um, find ways to exercise your creativity in a way that might not just be business oriented and have fun with it. I love that. And I definitely agree. It's, it's lots of worlds have opened to us in, in different ways than we would expect when the rest of the world has been closed. So can you let us know how our listeners can connect with you, whether it's your website or Instagram or LinkedIn, whatever you prefer? On Instagram, we're at Blue Mercury. Um, it, for LinkedIn, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and you can find Blue Mercury on LinkedIn. So um, those are the three best ways um, to find us. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Marla, for your time and for being here and sharing all of your insights and your journey with us. It is so valuable and we really appreciate it. And thank you to everyone for listening. Check back next week for another great guest. Thank you so much, Karen, for being here. It was so great chatting with you. Thanks, Marla. And thank you, Abby, as well. So much fun. Thanks, Marla. It was great to see you. I'm April Franzino, and this is Beauty Is Your Business. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network 
and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.